Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to today's presentation on getting to grips with inheritance tax and wills. Uh, this presentation is going to be carried out by myself, Eddie Harrington, uh, in conjunction with Jennifer Beaujeur from BWK Solicitors. Uh, so firstly, a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I'm a tax director at Seymour Taylor. I've been there the best part of 32 years. Before that, I was employed by HM Revenue and Customs, uh, the Inland Revenue it was in those days. I was there for about 12 years. So in, in total, I've done uh, about 44 years in various uh, types of tax. Inheritance tax is uh, an issue that does crop up a lot with clients. And today, as I've done with previous presentations, I'm going to focus on those areas, that the questions that come up time and time again, and also the answers that uh, crop up equally frequently. Um, at this point, uh, Jennifer, I'll let you say a few words about yourself and, and then we can move on. Thanks, Eddie. Uh, yes, my name is Jennifer Bozier. I'm a director of BWK Solicitors. Um, personally, I've been in the legal profession since 1997 when I left university uh, and then particularly in 2001, I specialised in uh, what they call private client, which is um, to you and I, wills, tax, trusts, probate, probate administration, powers of attorney and court of protection. Uh, and so I've been dealing with all of those things for about 20 years um, at various different uh, firms over the years. Uh, so I have gained uh, quite a lot of experience um, and my team of private client lawyers here have a similar experience over the years. Thank you for that, Jennifer. So the words you see on the screen there, I think most of us have come across them in some way, shape or form over the years. Uh, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Uh, that's attributed to Benjamin Franklin in 1789. Uh, interestingly, some research I did for this presentation uh, told me that the use of those words, or very similar words, were um, almost 100 years before then. So maybe Benjamin, when he wrote his letter in 1789, he was mindful of similar phrases that had been used about a hundred years before. So just move on to the next slide. Just some background information about the values or the gross capital values in estates. Typically in a year, estates are grossing in at about a hundred billion um, at the moment. Um, there have been large increases over the past decade or so due to increasing prices or values in residential property. So the fact that that filters through to inheritance tax and the value of estates is probably no great surprise. We have seen a, a tapering off of the tax take from inheritance tax, as I'll come on to in a moment, um, as a consequence of a new relief that was introduced a few years ago, and I'll explain a little bit about that um, shortly. So at the moment, about 25,000 estates are liable to inheritance tax. That's less than 5% of the total. So it isn't a huge number, 
uh, in all honesty. 25,000 states at the moment. It was previously about 15,000 if we go back a decade. So the numbers are, are, are going up, but it's still a fairly small proportion at less than 5%. And as you can see from that screen there, the tax take is just over £5 billion. Um, that isn't a huge amount when you compare it to income tax, national insurance, corporation tax, VAT. They're the big hitters when it comes to uh, raising taxes for the exchequer. So five billion or thereabouts out, out of the value of estates that you will recall came in at just over a hundred billion. So maybe there could be a bit of scope there for some, some more inheritance tax for us to uh, be um, paying over the coming years. We know that as a country, we've got to find more taxes. We've had some recent examples of changes um, as to how that will come about. And this could be an area that could be looked at as well. I mentioned earlier that receipts have gradually been going up, um, primarily due to the increase in the residential property values. And that was the case until we got to the year 2019-20. And what happened then, we, we saw actually receipts dropping back a bit and there was one really good reason why that happened, because a few years prior to that, there was a main residence, or it's called the residential property nil rate band was introduced, which in addition to the basic nil rate band that we're all entitled to, gave a further exemption or um, gave a, a further allowance for inheritance tax on death to uh, eliminate more of the tax charge if you had a residence that would qualify. There are some key um, points about this relief as to how it works. Uh, the main ones being that you must leave the property to a direct descendant. So you can't leave it to uh, a sibling or your favorite niece. It has to go directly down the family line. That's a very key point um, in uh, qualifying for this relief. Another very important point is that it only applies to estates with a value of up to 2 million. So that there is a form of tapering just beyond 2 million, but really once you get over an estate of 2 million, you will not qualify for this relief, or at least you will not qualify for it in full. A final very important point that I would like to mention on the relief is you don't actually have to own the property at the date of death. It doesn't necessarily have to be in your estate. So an example may be where you've had to sell the property, perhaps to very topical this, pay for care home fees. Um, if you've had to do that, then obviously the property would not be in your estate when it comes to your death. But providing you can ring fence the proceeds from that sale, and maybe the best way of doing that would be to put them into a, a bank account following the sale, providing they can be identified, then there's no reason why you won't qualify for what is in effect a downsizing relief. So uh, I think that's an important thing to, to bear in mind. So onto the slide that's in, in front of you, a question that is often asked to me by clients, could I just clarify how much it is that they could leave um, tax-free at the date of death. 
So we've got four possible answers there, and you probably won't be surprised to hear that all four answers are potentially correct. And if I can just work my way through them and explain why they might all be correct, we, we're basically all entitled to a nil rate band of 325,000. That can be doubled to 655, uh, sorry, 650,000 if you have a scenario whereby you've got, a, say, a husband and wife, and on the first death, the allowance wasn't used. So in effect, it transfers to the surviving spouse. So when it comes to the second death, two lots of 325,000 equals 650,000. That is the sum that could potentially be used. The, the first 325,000 doesn't get lost. If we look at C and D, both those numbers are A and B in effect, uplifted by this main resident nil rate band that I mentioned, worth 175,000, or in the case of uh, doubling up, worth 350,000. That is available uh, in full from the 2021 tax year. It, it was tapered in over a few years, but we've got to the full extent of that relief now. So we do have a situation where potentially you could have an estate where up to one million pounds would be free of inheritance tax. That's the situation that we have now uh, reached. So if I could just move on. Uh, another question here that clients uh, often ask me is in relation to uh, the annual exemption, um, how much can they give away free of inheritance tax during their lifetime? Now, potentially all those answers are, are also correct. If I can just explain the linkage between A and B, we, we can all give away £3,000 a year. And when it comes to an inheritance tax charge, there will be no liability on that £3,000. I know it's not a great deal, but over a number of years, it, it can mount up if, if you can use it each year. The 6000 comes into play whereby if you have not used your 3000 in the previous year, you can use it in addition to the 3000 you have in the current year. So you could potentially get to 6000 that would be totally uh, exempt from inheritance tax come the time that some inheritance tax calculations were carried out on your estate. That can be doubled up in the case of a husband and wife, so potentially you could have 6,000 each uh, or uh, 3,000 each, depending on, as I say, whether you've used the allowance for the previous year. If you haven't used it in earlier years, it will get lost. So you can't you know, add seven years up together and say, I've got 21,000 worth of um, unused exemption, you can only go back the one year. In many respects, though, a more useful answer or accurate answer would be C, because if you are making a gift during your lifetime, provided you survive the gift by seven years, there will not be any inheritance tax on that gift. It's obviously key to survive the gift by seven years. So potentially there isn't a limit on the amount that you could gift uh, currently. I would throw in one word of caution though. You have to be careful 
as to the type of asset that you're gifting. And the reason for this is that another tax could come into play, one of capital gains tax. If, for instance, you were gifting cash, um, that will be fine. There will be no capital gains tax on that. But if you were looking to gift, say, a property or some shares, there could well be some capital gains tax charges on that. So it isn't just a question of looking at the potential inheritance tax saving in those circumstances. You need also to take account of the capital gains tax consequences. So I think this, what I'm gonna say about this next slide, I would describe as possibly the most misunderstood the tax relief um, that I've come across. I've mentioned the surviving of a gift by seven years, so it doesn't form part of your estate at death. There is a form of taper relief whereby if you survive the gift by three years, the, the, there could be some inheritance tax relief available, but I, I can tell you the relief is not nearly as generous as, as most people believe it to be. If I can just explain, what actually gets tapered is the amount of tax on the gift, not the gift itself. Many people seem to think that the gift gets tapered down, but it's the amount of tax. So by way of example, if you made a gift today of £100,000 and you survived it by five years and not the full seven. So it would come into your inheritance tax calculations on death. That 100,000 pounds would be within that 325,000 pound nil rate band that I mentioned earlier. So the tax on that within the nil rate band is zero. It's the figure of zero that gets tapered. So it, it's of no value whatsoever. Uh, I guess you would have worked out by now to get any benefit from this tapering relief, you basically will have had to have gifted more than your nil rate band at death. So if you'd gifted half a million today and didn't survive that by um, seven years, um, but you survived by say five years, there would be a form of tapering to the extent that your nil rate band was say 325,000, the bit between 325,000 and half a million, the 175,000, the tax produced on that, that's what would be tapered. A very useful relief, uh, the next one, gifts out of surplus income. The key point here is that you must have sufficient income that when you take account of the gifts that you're making, you still have sufficient income to live off. Um, the best example I can think of this is maybe some grandparents paying the school fees for the grandchildren, and provided after those fees are paid, they still have enough income to meet their normal standard of living, then those gifts will fall outside the inheritance tax net. I just need to clarify that the gifts need to be regular, but in that respect, regular, if, you, if you've done it twice, that ought to be enough. Obviously, if you've done it a bit more than that, that would be better, but it isn't a high benchmark uh, to reach in, in terms of the regularity of the gift. I would wholeheartedly recommend 
looking at uh, inheritance tax form IHT 403, because if, if you want to be really helpful towards your executors and help them uh, fill in the inheritance tax forms when it is necessary on, on your behalf, if you look at that form IHT 403, towards the back, there's quite a useful section um, that calculates um, how you might arrive at these numbers and document these figures, which will be, as I say, I'm sure very useful for your executors come the time. So if I can just move on to um, considering IHT free investments. I think the, one of the advantages here is that we've talked about making a gift and having to survive it by seven years. If we can find an asset that meets the business property relief, it's now called business relief, but if we can find an asset that satisfies these conditions for inheritance tax, we get a 100% inheritance tax exemption on death, but the asset only needs to have been held for two years. So there might be some attraction to uh, investing in some assets that would qualify for this. So it's typically going to be a business, uh, AIM listed shares. Uh, those of you that have uh, stockbrokers or the people managing your investments, it may be worth talking to them to see if it's worthwhile diversifying some of your investments into assets that would qualify for this relief. Typically, there will be these will be uh, higher risk in terms of investment, but often the reward for tax relief does follow risk. So it's perhaps not a great surprise, but at 40% inheritance tax relief, it's something that might be worth considering um, in some small way uh, at least. So just moving on to my final slide before I hand over to Jennifer, um, and, and this is sort of perfect linking. It doesn't always come through as this kind of question, but what, what is behind the point I'm trying to make here is the continuation of having some control. Uh, many conversations with clients will be along the lines of, uh, I've worked very hard all my life, I've um, you know, built up this wealth, and you know, I just really am a little bit concerned about giving it away and, and losing that control. So what can I do? Trusts, I think, are worth looking at in, in this respect. And Jennifer will be certainly covering this as I hand over to her. But there will be ways of maybe controlling uh, your, your wealth um, during your lifetime for, for a little longer uh, and even beyond, uh, beyond that. So I think at this point, Jennifer, it's a uh, a good opportunity to let you take over. Thank you, Eddie. Um, that's a very useful uh, guide to inheritance tax. Um, I also deal with inheritance tax uh, uh, as my role as a probate administrator. Um, I deal with many estates um, after uh, a person has died. Um, and uh, so uh, Eddie and I have uh, a good working relationship uh, regarding lifetime uh, tax planning and after death uh, tax planning. Um, so I'll come on to that in a, a little bit. Um, just want to talk about uh, the firm that I'm a director of. Um, 
We are a small local firm. Um, our uh, actual name is Reed Cooper, um, but we trade as BWK Solicitors. Um, we have offices in Chalfonts and Giles and Stone just outside Aylesbury. Um, over the pandemic, we've had to alter our standard arrangements. And so we now do an awful lot of online meetings um, with uh, clients um, if they are unable or don't want to come in for face-to-face. Uh, but I still very much favour a face-to-face meeting if I can. Uh, it is the best way of discussing um, your requirements. Uh, we also do offer home visits as well for people that can't get into the office or can't do online meetings. Um, we have a range of services, not just private clients. Um, we have conveyancing departments and a family department uh, to cover all of your needs. Um, but uh, my department in particular, there are four of us in the team. Um, we cover wills and powers of attorney, which I'll talk on. Uh, in a little bit and probate and estate administration uh, and tax and trusts and estate planning and also not mentioned here court of protection work which again I'll, I'll touch on it in a little bit. Um, why do people need our help? Um, a lot of people think they can do it themselves and Google is an extremely useful tool uh, for all of us uh, including me. Um, the majority of people come to us uh, because they want peace of mind uh, to know that they are understanding everything properly um, and that they're, they're not missing anything um, that they might not otherwise know about. Uh, so our common uh, questions that we have from people are inheritance tax advice, how to protect your assets um, and your estate um, before death and after death. Um, a common theme is also vulnerable beneficiaries or family members, uh, which I'll touch on a little bit when we're talking about trust. Um, a particular uh, point that uh, most people assume is going to automatically happen but doesn't is ensuring that your estate goes where you actually want it to go. Uh, there are laws behind the scenes to say where uh, everything should go should you have died, um, but uh, that is uh, very much leaving it in the hands of the government and the statutory provisions that there are already. Um, and then also uh, we are contacted on a regular basis by clients who want to know whether anything's changed. Um, we have the delight uh, of keeping up to date with government changes. And I have to say, they do have a habit of changing uh, without notice, usually ahead of a general election. So it is uh, sometimes a surprise to us. And quite often we do not hear ahead of you. Um, and so uh, we quite often have people uh, coming up to us with uh, articles from the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph, uh, which are always of interest to us as well. Um, I constantly get asked this, why do I need to do a will at all? Or why can't I do a will myself? Um, a will is actually a way of ensuring that your assets go to where you wish. Now, without a will, um, there is a, a law uh, called the intestacy rules, directing who receives everything if you haven't left a will. It is an extremely uh, strict list of who inherits and who can take charge. Um, the main reason uh, to do a will is not necessarily to direct your assets, even if they're to the same people that would have inherited um, should uh, you not have left a will, is actually, I think, uh, the appointment of executors. Only you can do this. So only a will that you make can appoint the people in charge of sorting everything out. Um, without a will uh, and without executors, uh, it is down to the uh, law behind the scenes as to who is in charge 
uh, sorting things out. And that can be somewhat of a rudderless ship. So I fully encourage people to do uh, wills just simply to appoint a person in charge of it because it all goes a lot easier if they do. Um, another reason is for guardians, uh, obviously, if you have underage children um, and uh, making particular gifts to people, uh, personal items or specific assets like property that might not necessarily go without a, a will to the right person. Um, a large majority of clients uh, draw up trusts um, or consider how to protect a number of beneficiaries at the same time. Um, I'll come on to that with trust in a bit. Um, and uh, a common theme of doing the will yourself compared to uh, uh, asking someone like me to prepare it is uh, I can make sure that it is valid. Um, and this in turn hopefully prevents any uh, potential family arguments. Um, I read a statistic uh, the other day on a lecture that I was on uh, that one in four wills are contested. That's uh, quite a statistic to think about. Um, it is much less likely that a will is going to be contested if it's been drawn up professionally. So one of the main reasons that people come to us is to uh, ask what their options are regarding their will. Many people assume that there is only one way to draw up a will. I leave everything to this person or these people. That's not true. There are uh, many and different options available. And I find that uh, a lot of people are constantly surprised at the options and find that they have been put off doing their will because they were not aware of the other options that were available. Um, trusts, the word trust, you would think, would automatically make you trust in it. But actually, we find that most people are extremely suspicious of trust. Um, possibly because uh, of uh, Charles Dickens and other historical uh, references to trust that seem uh, very unattainable and not for you. Um, again, times have moved on and trusts are now available for everybody um, and anyone that has any assets might want to consider them. If you leave your will to a person or, or a selection of people, once you have died, they receive it. And all of those assets that you have passed to them belong to them. In other words, all your eggs are in one basket. Um, trusts are a way of protecting those assets for your beneficiaries. So we commonly see trusts for young children. And in actual fact, a trust is automatically created by law uh, if you have died and left your estate to children that are under 18. A uh, child cannot inherit legally until they are 18. Um, but some people put trust in place for ages um, older than that. Uh, there are other reasons as well. Estate planning, uh, particularly if you are an unmarried couple, this can be extremely vital uh, in order to protect the nil rate bans that Eddie was talking about earlier. Um, again, I'll comment on that later. Uh, vulnerable beneficiaries, um, they can be many and varied in, in their types. Uh, it could be a person with a disability, um, a person that's not going to be able to live on their own, um, an elderly person, um, somebody that's not very good with money, um, or could be vulnerable as in uh, to other influences. Um, and finally, uh, flexibility. Uh, I really reiterate this with regard to trusts. Uh, it provides options and flexibility for your future generations or your next beneficiaries. It is essentially putting a protective wall around your assets and then at that point 
when it comes into fruition, um, the beneficiaries and the trustees look at what needs to be done and decide whether uh, any changes are needed at the time. And so it allows for things like seeing what the tax laws are and whether they've changed um, or what the beneficiaries need um, and what they're likely to need in the future. So just to run through the different types of trusts that we generally deal with. Um, in 2006, the government really changed the rules dramatically for trusts. There were many, many different types of trusts before that um, that were all designed to do different things. And the government um, changed the rules dramatically and there are essentially only a few types of trusts now available, or at least the tax treatment of them um, is much more restricted. Um, so, as I touched on earlier, trust for young beneficiaries, you can't inherit before you're 18. Some uh, people put uh, uh, an age older than that in their will, so 21 or 25 is quite common. Um, this allows for the children to be a little older before they inherit, but they do inherit at that age. Uh, the wills that we draw up have full powers to advance money to them earlier if they need it. Um, so it's not locked up, uh, it's just it's in control of the executors or the trustees until they've reached the right age that you think um, would be suitable. So we commonly see eight, uh, 18, 21 or 25, depending on uh, the individual circumstances. Um, moving on to actual trusts um, that are in there, well, rather than statutory trusts for underage beneficiaries, uh, a discretionary trust is a word for all the different types of trusts that you might see out there. Um, a discretionary trust, clue is in the title, discretionary. Um, it has the flexibility with a list of your beneficiaries and people in charge of that trust to decide who receives what and when. Uh, this can be extremely um, useful for uh, a range of circumstances if you're not quite sure what the beneficiaries tend to require. Um, and uh, is also commonly used for children that might be getting divorced and so withholding it from their estate until there's a point where it is safe to advance to giving it out to them. Uh, an immediate post-death interest uh, is commonly called a life interest trust. This is a protection for a specific named beneficiary. So rather than a list uh, of beneficiaries, this is usually one person, most commonly the surviving spouse in a couple. Um, it has the advantage of giving them specific protection for their life. And then when they have died, instead of it forming part of their estate, it passes to your named beneficiaries. Um, flexible life interest trust is a combination of the two. So it has a life interest trust on the top and then a discretionary trust underneath it. So um, there are generally two types of trusts over and above that. One that you put in your will and one that you do during your lifetime. Now, Eddie touched on earlier about inheritance tax and how you might be able to um, mitigate your estate. A lot of people come to me and say, what can I put in my will to save inheritance tax? Prior to 2007, almost all of our wills had trusts in because the nil rate band was not transferable to the surviving spouse. And so uh, we have what's called a nil rate band discretionary trust, which is extremely common even today. And what that was designed to do was to uh, protect uh, the nil rate band of the first spouse so that the surviving spouse could use it 
and then um, uh, you were using both nil rate bands. However, in 2007, they changed the rules and allowed this transferable nil rate band that we've now had for the past 15 years. If one spouse dies, the other one receives the whole estate outright, no trust in place. The surviving spouse has one tax threshold themselves and the transferable nil rate band from their first spouse. Um, so um, less need to do a will trust and certainly not um, particularly helpful for inheritance tax purposes, but you'll see uh, in a bit that there are some other advantages to having a will trust. We don't do as many will trusts these days for inheritance tax purposes, but we do do many of them for other reasons. Lifetime trusts are still very much uh, a viable option. They're just not as po uh, popular as they used to be prior to the 2006 changes. Um, there have been many schemes over the years that have been tried and failed uh, by various people and the Inland Revenue have shut them down. Um, but on the whole, there are lifetime trusts available. So if you want to do some tax planning, it is best to do it before your death, uh, i.e. giving away assets like Eddie has mentioned. Um, a lifetime trust can be used for that uh, if you want to get assets out of your name, but you don't want it to pass to a beneficiary yet. Um, so examples are young, young children, uh, where you wouldn't want to put it in their name now, but you want to start your seven year clock um, of survivorship and you want to get it out of your name. So lifetime trusts we do do, uh, we tend to try and keep them uh, as simple as possible and they don't always uh, suit everybody. It depends on your own individual circumstances. As I say here, each trust has its advantages and different tax consequences. Um, I won't go into those now, but if you do uh, need any help or advice, I can always answer those questions for you. Trust registration. Um, up until fairly recently, the only trusts that the Inland Revenue wanted to know about were trusts that had something that was reportable to the Inland Revenue. So, for example, income coming in on a trust or a capital gain uh, on an asset that's been sold in the trust uh, or an anniversary that uh, was reportable. However, uh, changes to the uh, laws have taken place over the last year or so, and the uh, inland revenue now require all trusts, bar a very few exceptions, um, to be registered at the inland revenue. Um, they haven't really worked out what it is that they've taken on by putting this in place. Uh, the software is only just becoming available. Um, we are uh, in the process of obtaining that software and Eddie already will have that ability to help if you need to register a trust. Um, most trusts will now need to be registered. Um, so that is coming up uh, in the next year. Uh, you have a deadline of September 2022 for all uh, existing trusts. I think that's right, isn't it, Eddie? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the different types of trusts um, are quite, well, they're quite limited these days, but um, you might want to know some more information about them. Um, that's all I'm going to say about trusts at the moment. Um, I'm going to move on to lasting powers of attorney, which uh, is not something everybody knows about, although I think more people now do. Um, it's really uh, a particular passion of mine. Um, wills, everybody knows that they need to have them. Um, trusts, everybody knows are available, but they don't necessarily know what they are. Not everybody knows what the power of attorney is when it comes into effect or why you might need them. So I have the following questions for you. Who would sort things out for you if something happened? Now, by 
something happens, I do not mean death, if somebody has died, their will takes over um, and their executors are in charge. But what happens if you are incapacitated in any way um, during your lifetime? Who would sort things out for you? Well, you might assume, well, uh, my next of kin, my, my husband, wife, my daughter, uh, my mum. But actually, um, nobody has the legal authority to manage your affairs for you if you cannot. Nobody, not even a spouse. Um, I therefore think that drawing up a power of attorney is almost more important than a will. If you think about it, the will takes effect after you've died. You're not here to see the effect. And there is a statutory legal uh, set of rules behind the scenes as to who gets everything. Uh, power of attorney, you could be laid up in hospital, um, seeing your family having a great deal of difficulty trying to manage things for you. Um, I therefore personally think it's far more important to have a lasting power of attorney in place um, to assist your family in just running your affairs um, as they would need to be run if you were not able to do so. Um, I've had a lot of comments over the years a lot um, of why they don't, why a person doesn't need a power of attorney or why they don't need it now. Um, so I've put a few comments as to uh, why, uh, why you might not think you need it. I won't need to go into care. Well, that's a pretty obvious one. Nobody knows that. Um, everybody hopes they won't need it. Um, but of course, uh, we all have got experiences of uh, uh, relatives or friends that have needed to go into care. It's only needed if I lose my marbles. By that, I mean my mental capacity. Um, I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's just for dementia and care homes. Uh, yes, it is. But if you stop and think about incapacity, this can mean many different things. So it could be that you have gone into hospital with a hip operation. You just can't get out and you're stuck in hospital longer than you anticipated. Um, I've had cases of uh, arthritis that mean that the check signature is not being recognised um, or in particular in my uh, father's case, um, partially deaf. Um, nobody will speak to anyone else on the phone uh, about uh, his direct debits. He, his British gas would only speak to him and uh, therefore very difficult for anybody else to speak to them on their behalf about their direct debits or something as simple as that. Um, I will do this when something happens. You can only draw up, only you can draw up a lasting power of attorney. Uh, nobody else can take it for you or draw it up for you. Therefore, you must have the sufficient mental capacity to draw up a power of attorney. If something's happened, it is quite often too late. And I can assure you there is nothing uh, particularly fun about someone like me turning up at your bedside in a hospital uh, to say, would you like to do a power of attorney? Your family have called me here. Um, it is much better to get this done before anything happens. Um, and so in that respect, I feel like a bit of an insurance salesman, but that can't be helped. It's an important document. Loss of control is the other concern with powers of attorney. They um, are a person who is generally worried that somebody else will take over their finances and they will not be able to continue to do them. Uh, that's also not true, although um, it is a very powerful document. So you must uh, trust the people that you choose. 
um, you still retain full control. The only time that any loss of control happens is if you have completely lost mental capacity and you cannot make any decisions yourself. But there are many in-between circumstances where you can do some of your finances and you can ask your attorneys to help you out. I liken it to having a personal PA that can carry out things for you. That's certainly how my mum treats me. Um, the final one is everything we have in, is in joint names, that will be okay. I have uh, found that the banks have a different interpretation of the banking code in this respect. Uh, in particular, I had a case many years ago where the uh, spouse had gone into care, the husband uh, had needed access to their joint account and they were refused because they didn't, the bank did not have the full capacity of both uh, joint account holders. So we had to apply to court, which I'll come on to next. Um, so yes, joint names does help, but it is not the uh, complete um, package. Uh, a power of attorney is the only legal authority you can have uh, to appoint people that you choose to deal with your uh, finances or health. If you don't have one, don't want to be the harbinger of doom here, but if something happens and you do not have a power of attorney, yes, there is a legal process, but it is not a great one. The only option, if you don't have a, a valid power of attorney in place, is to apply to the Court of Protection for a Deputy Chief Order. Uh, as you can imagine, any application to court um, is a lot of paperwork. Um, it costs a lot more. You have to pay uh, 300 and something pounds to the court uh, to apply, uh, and there are ongoing fees uh, for doing so. Um, less flexibility because the court chooses who to appoint. Uh, not you, although you can apply uh, to say I want to be the person, they're the ones that decide whether you're suitable. You have to re report to them every year, um, and so that uh, means you have to do accounts and pay them the privilege of checking them. Uh, uh, a doctor or a GP has to mentally assess the person who has lost the capacity to manage their finances and generally they charge a fee for that as well and currently it's taking at least six months to get a court protection order in place and so you can imagine if you're under pressure to help with a person that's lost capacity say they've gone into care and the care home are putting pressure on you to pay the fees from the money that you cannot access then this is extremely stressful you also have to have an insurance bond in place um, so all in all, this is not an option I would choose to have. A power of attorney is far more a flexible uh, option for you. There are two types, one for finance and one for health. The finance one is pretty obvious. Um, if you don't have one, your bank will not let anybody else have access to any information or indeed the actual accounts themselves. Uh, finances means that many different things, bank accounts, investments, property, pensions, direct debits. Um, it can be used uh, on a long-term basis, on a short-term basis. Uh, so if you're in hospital for a small period of time or you're abroad and you need someone to help sell your house while you're away, these are types of uh, situations that we've commonly seen where powers of attorney really come into play. Um, you can carry on dealing with some aspects of your finances and you can just get your attorneys to help you out. The other type is health and welfare, which is slightly less known about. Um, it was only introduced in 2007, whereas the finance power of attorney has been around for some decades. Um, you might assume that your next of kin can deal with your uh, decisions, uh, but actually we're finding more and more that the doctors and uh, medical staff have been much more careful as to who they accept instructions from. 
And so um, doctors are getting training on health and welfare powers of attorney. And I'm finding more and more clients coming to me as a result of difficulties they've had with uh, communications with GPs and um, healthcare professionals. It is exactly what you imagine. You're appointing people to deal with your decisions on medical treatment, where you live, life support issues, consent or refusal through operation. Registration is required before it can be used. Powers of attorney can be drawn up, um, but they can be left unregistered. We generally recommend the registration um, at the same time as drawing them up um, so that they're ready to be used at the right time um, in an emergency if required. Uh, the registration, there is a process and a fee that you have to pay to the office of the public guardian. But the vital thing about your power of attorney, though, is choosing the right people. So you can have friends or relatives or professionals. Uh, you can have one or more than one attorney. You can have uh, more than one attorney. How do they act? Jointly or jointly and separately? Jointly means they can act together all of the time. The difficulty with that is one of them is unavailable. The other cannot act. And so we generally recommend joint and several. And that means the attorneys can act together or separately as is needed. Um, you can appoint one or more than one with a substitute or a replacement. Um, there are various things I can advise on there. Um, your attorneys have to sign the paperwork, so it's always a good idea to check with them as to whether they're winning to act as your attorneys. Um, a very important decision, though, uh, it is a powerful document um, based entirely on trust that you've appointed people um, that will carry things out as you would wish. Um, if you don't trust them, you should not have them. Um, that is a very brief overview of wills and trusts and powers of attorney. Um, if you do have any queries or questions, I'm more than happy to answer them. I'm also more than happy to have an initial meeting just to talk you through what your wishes uh, and needs might be. Um, and then I can get through all the options available to you. Um, I will pass you back to Eddie now for the final part of our, our discussion and for us to take some questions from you, which I hope you have. Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer. So um, if we could just move on, if you don't mind to put the slide, the next slide on, Jennifer. Thank you very much. So yes, the best IHT planning uh, often might be to spend it. I had one client not so long ago, obviously be before COVID came in. He took all his family on a cruise and told me how pleased he was that the uh, taxman was contributing 40% towards the cost of the cruise. So I thought that was a very nice way of looking at it. So as Jennifer said, we'll uh, move on to some uh, questions and answers. I know uh, my colleague Suzanne, I think we have uh, a couple of questions uh, at least that have come through. So uh, would you be so kind as to relay them and myself and Jennifer then can do our very best to answer them. Hi Eddie, um, yeah the first one is for you, one that came in in advance was given the need to raise additional revenues, how likely do you think there could be any increases in inheritance tax? Uh, very good question, um, yes I'll, I'll get my crystal ball I think on that one. As you saw, the uh, gross value of estates at um, over 100 billion and the tax take of 5 billion, uh, potentially you'd say on the face of that, yes, there has to be some scope 
to uh, get a bit more inheritance tax. Personally, it's the other taxes that I mentioned, the income tax, national insurance, corporation tax, and VAT, and we've already seen some changes to, to corporation tax going forward. I think they're the main taxes that um, the government of the day will be looking to, to raise further funds. Uh, it, it could well be if we had a, a, you know, without trying to be political about this, but maybe a, a government of a different persuasion might take a, a totally different view on capital taxes, inheritance type tax, uh, who knows, but I'd be surprised if it got away completely unscathed. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Eddie. Um, and Jen, next one for you. What is the impact of the recent changes to the rules regarding payment of care fees? Uh, yes, another topical one, isn't it? Um, I was looking with interest at the uh, changes that the government came up with. This has been long awaited um, and something that uh, no government seems to have been brave enough to tackle uh, over the past few years. Care fees is a huge uh, subject. Um, it's completely separate to inheritance tax uh, and something that a lot of people don't tend to realise. They quote to me things like seven years, um, I want to give away my property and if I survive seven years, great, uh, it can't be taken for care fees. Um, that's not true at all. Um, there are lots of uh, things we can uh, help with regarding mitigation of care fees or at least estate planning if uh, you do need some assistance. The changes to the rules are um, previously, if you had assets of over £23,000 and you had gone into care, you were required to pay for your care in full. Um, once you'd run out, once you got to the £23,000, um, you then paid partly and the local authority paid partly until you got down to a very generous uh, 14500 in which they then might fully fund you. Um, that's now changed, although I'm not quite sure when it's actually coming in. Uh, it is now uh, you pay in full over £100,000. So this is an increase uh, and this will benefit people generally um, that they won't have to start paying for care um, over £100,000 unless they have assets of over £100,000. In addition to this, uh, the government have announced that there's a care, care costs cap which again has been long awaited and tried before. Uh, it's 86,000 pounds. I have no idea why they've come up with that figure. Um, however, this is not uh, uh, a cap on all your care costs completely. It is purely on the care that you received. Now, if you go into a care home, um, then you are paying not just for the care, but also the uh, accommodation and living costs. Um, they are not capping the cost on those. They are just capping the cost on the care. This has not been thought through, I don't think. Um, I believe there's going to be an awful lot of uh, toing and froing. Uh, care homes generally don't separate out their bill between care costs and um, living costs. I have no idea how they're going to police that or who is going to keep a tab on how much money you have spent on care. I suspect it will be down to the family uh, to keep an eye on. Um, so although it is uh, a better situation than we've had previously, it is not uh, meaning that you don't have to pay for care at all. The will trusts that we have in place, particularly for married couples, are extremely beneficial for protection of assets for care. 
uh, potentially for care in some circumstances. So um, it is worthwhile taking some advice and seeing uh, what your situation is uh, individually. I'm happy to go through that with you um, to assess the new care fee rules and whether they are completely beneficial to you or only partly, and therefore do you want to still put some protection in place? Um, but yes, it's some way, but not a complete um, overhaul of the care system, which I think is needed. Brilliant, thank you. And um, Eddie, the next one is for you, which has come through from one of the um, current webinar attendees today. Can you avoid capital gains tax when you transfer a property into a trust? I think that the simple answer is yes, it is possible, but it has to be a certain kind of trust. And the certain kind of trust it has to be is a discretionary trust. There may well be some inheritance tax consequences of that um, uh, transfer because it's deemed to be a chargeable lifetime transfer, which is quite different from the uh, potentially exempt transfers that I was alluding to earlier. So to the extent that uh, the value of the property might be in excess of your nil rate band, uh, sorry, 325,000, there could be some inheritance tax issues. Uh, maybe if I could just pass the, the second leg of this question uh, to Jennifer, because it does link into trusts. Mm, that's right. Yeah, there is a, um, a difference between making a gift into trust and a gift to a person, as Eddie said. So if you make a gift to a person after seven years, it's called a potentially exempt transfer or a pet, uh, as we call it. Uh, whereas a gift into trust is a lifetime chargeable transfer or an LCT. Um, if the value of the gift into trust is over the tax threshold, um, then there is a requirement to pay part of the inheritance tax now. So if you make a gift of 400,000 into a trust, you have to pay 20% um, on the excess of the nil rate band now. And if you don't survive seven years, I think it's uh, the remainder of the 40%, the 20% balance um, at the end of seven years, uh, uh, I seem to recall. Um, I am not, uh, Eddie's the person to ask about capital gains tax um, on these sorts of things. I believe there's things like hold, holdover relief as well, uh, isn't there, Eddie? Yes, if, if it were a business asset, so if it were a factory or maybe something like that, there could be uh, a form of holdover relief, which um, mm. you know, is a different issue altogether. But if it were a residential property, mm. then we'd probably be looking at, without any form of planning, that there, there could potentially be a 28% capital gains tax charge um, on the gain from that. And uh, as you said, Jennifer, um, you know, may, maybe a trust would work, but we, we do have to be mindful of the, the inheritance tax uh, issues surrounding it. I it think it rather depends on the numbers. Really. Yes, it certainly does. And it has to be a considered approach looking at the history of all of the gifts that a person's made either to trusts or to other people. Um, people have uh, come a bit of a cropper uh, over doing this before. So you have to look at the whole of your history of gifts and what you've made, what you're proposing to do and what you're proposing to do in the future. Um, and quite often Eddie and I work together on this sort of thing with clients uh, to make sure that we're not missing anything or seeing if there's any other better options out there. Yeah. There is one other form of tax planning that might be quite interesting and it is linked into what I said in connection with 
um, the business property relief and holding an asset for two years to qualify for the 100% inheritance tax exemption. If you make a capital gain, you can invest into something called the enterprise investment scheme. You can invest that gain into the enterprise investment scheme. And in effect, you are deferring the payment of capital gains tax further on down the line. It would be completely eradicated if you still held those that investment at death. So again, that might be something worth looking at just by putting the gain into an enterprise investment scheme. Typically, again, more risk associated with such things, but you have a combination of capital gains tax deferral, maybe removing your capital gains liability, an asset in the investment that after two years is 100% free of inheritance tax. And a real bonus on top of this is that you also get an income tax relief. You get an income tax credit of 30% to set off against your tax liability. So certainly anybody who's um, producing a capital gain on a property and you, you're ticking some of those boxes as to the reliefs that might be useful to you, I think an enterprise investment scheme is, is something that you, you know, at least should look at, if nothing else other than to eliminate it. We've had another question come in, which is, um, do you have to document a cash gift which you are hoping will fall in the seven year exemption rule? I think that's probably for me. Um, uh, I'm sorry, um, this is probably for me. Um, no, you don't have to document it, but if you don't, you're giving you the executors a bit of a job uh, to sort out because it's the executors that sign the tax paperwork after a person's died and they are signing to the true and best of their belief. And so if they're not sure, they have to trawl through your bank statements and check stubs and things like that to see what gifts have been made. Uh, otherwise, they can get in trouble. Generally, we say yes, document it, make a note of when the gift was made, put it with your will. That is the easiest way uh, for your executors, make it easy for your executors to know. Uh, otherwise, they're in danger of uh, not doing their job properly. That's great. Thank you. I think um, we're nearly at time. So I think that's all probably time for the questions today. Okay, well, thank, thank you, you uh, Suzanne, for that. And thank you also, Jennifer, for... Um, all your help and uh, assistance today. It's very interesting uh, as ever. Uh, and thank you to everybody who has attended. Um, please don't hesitate to come back to myself or Jennifer. If you have any further follow-up questions, we'll do our very best uh, to answer them. We're planning on sharing a recording of this within the next few days. So uh, please feel free to pass that on to anybody that you think might be interested in listening to it. And also, if there's anything that we've talked on today that you feel might be useful um, as a subject that we could go into in a little bit more detail, maybe care homes, that's a very topical one, as Jennifer said, we'd be very happy to take that on board. And uh, maybe that could be the subject of our next presentation. But thank you very much and uh, have a good afternoon.